Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse, an evangelist of incredible intellect, extraordinary language skills, and a true expositor of the scriptures. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents a sermon on sin and judgment. What are the thoughts of a criminal who has been convicted and who goes back to his cell to wait for the court to convene again, to pass sentence upon him? Does he go over in his mind the maximum and the minimum sentence and wonder if he can get off with the least possible penalty? Or does there still linger in his brain the fevered hope that a miracle might intervene and come between him and the just retribution which his deeds have earned for him? Our passage in the book of Romans comes to the close of this great section on sin and judgment. We read in chapter 3 and verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. An English translator, Phillips, puts it, we know what the message of the law is for those who live under it, that every excuse may die on the lips of him who makes it, and no living man may think himself beyond the judgment of God. In a court of earth, a convicted criminal might be lulled into a sense of false security because the judge postponed the day of sentence for one reason or another. But let not man think that he shall escape the jurisdiction of the divine court. The sentence is sure, and the nature of the sentence is sure. The day of God's patience will come to an end, and the Lord will enter his holy temple, not in order to receive worship, but in order to pass judgment. Let no man think he can elude God's angels, that he can find an excuse to be absent, that he can have anything to say when he arrives there. As we pointed out before, God's bailiff enters the court and cries, The court is in session. Order, order. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Earth has talked long enough. It is now God's time to speak. First of all, it should be noted that God declares that the law was directed to those that are under the law. Primarily, this refers to God's ancient people but I believe there is a secondary application to every member of the human race who has any code of right and wrong by which they are attempting to live. Have you, any of you, lived up to your own standard of right and wrong? The answer is that you have not. With the present paragraph in our studies, the great argument is brought to an end. If I had been the Bible student who divided the Bible into chapters many centuries after it was written, our present verses would have formed the end of a chapter, and I would have made a new beginning with what is here set forth as the 21st verse. But the 19th and 20th verses which we now begin to consider would be the closing verses not only of their chapter, but of the great first section of the epistle. The whole world is lying in sin. That is the theme of what we have seen. A trip to the so-called heathen lands gives a very proper adjustment 
to the perspective of our outlook upon the unbelieving world about us. The traveler is shocked at much of what he sees. Accustomed to standards of Western civilization, one cannot help being slightly startled the first time one sees half a roast dog hanging in the marketplace, or the first time he sees a blood sacrifice to appease evil spirits, or sees the dead body of a human being lying beside a road with no passerby giving it a thought. The shock is primarily to our sense of custom until we are given the greater shock of realizing that the only difference between what we see in the so-called heathen world and in Christendom is that between sin in rags and sin in silk, there is an apparent difference in our sight, but none in God's sight. Why are the nations where they are? The word of God gives us a terrible answer. We read in Psalm 9:15, the nations are sunk down in the pit that they have made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The heathen lands, China, the United States, Africa, Great Britain, and the rest, are where they are because they have departed from God. The first chapter of Romans gives us the answer, explains, in fact, the successive steps in man's departure from God. They are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. This begins with the nations as they were when they knew God. We stand at the pinnacle of heaven and watch their descent. Vain reasoning, a darkened heart, the profession of wisdom. They become fools. They make images, first of man, then of birds, then of beasts, then of creeping things. And then comes the triple horror of an abandonment by God. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. This is the pit in which the nations of the world find themselves today. Individuals may come out through personal faith in Christ, but the Lord must return before the nations will know any righteousness. Following this, the second chapter set forth the great moral principles under which God would one day bring each individual to judgment. Without respect of persons, God will deal with each individual as he is with all the excuses brushed aside. Moral pretensions and religious professions will be seen as hollow mockeries. Jew and Gentile alike will be brought guilty before God. Then, after brushing aside some supposed arguments in the opening of chapter 3, there is a complete examination of man's being, and he is seen to be corrupt from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet and every part of his being becomes a symbol of his departure from God. Now, at the close of this great first section of the epistle, the whole race is brought in before God, and the mouth of each individual is stopped as God proceeds to make the most stupendous announcements concerning the vindication of his own righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ and the consequent extension of the offer of salvation to every human being. Those are the themes that will occupy us for a score of studies to come. But just now, the ends of the knot which has been tied are looped for another knot, and the finger of God is thrust down upon it while he draws the ends into one final knot.
This verse is one that I have used so much in my individual ministry with souls that I have very many stories of spiritual experiences to illustrate some of its truths. Just as a doctor has certain diagnostic questions that become almost routine for use with practically every patient, so I have worked out some diagnostic techniques which I use with hundreds of people in the course of a year. A person comes to me with a problem, and if I do not know the person, I proceed somewhat as follows. First of all, we must find out whether we're going to deal with your need as with the need of a believer in Christ or an unbeliever. Have you been born again? Now, if there is an immediate clear-cut testimony that shows an intelligent knowledge of redemption and of a faith that is committed to Christ as Savior and Lord, then I can proceed with the problem itself. But if there is any hesitancy, any wavering, any doubt as to the questioner's personal salvation, I will say, perhaps I can clarify your thinking with a question. You know that there are a great many accidents today. Suppose that you and I should go out of this building and a swerving automobile should come up on the sidewalk and kill the two of us. In the next moment, we would be what men call dead. Now we brush aside as the most absurd folly that we're going to meet St. Peter at any gate. How such nonsense exists outside of jokes about two Irishmen is very difficult to comprehend. Peter was given the keys and he used the first one to unlock the door of the gospel to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and the second key to unlock the door to the Gentiles in the first Christian sermon to non-Jews in the house of Cornelius. From that moment, the door has been wide open and there is most certainly no need of any key for an open door. So I continue with the individual with whom I am talking and tell them, you are going to meet God. And if in this next minute God should say to you, what right, and note my emphasis on the word, what right do you have to come into my heaven, what would be your answer? I believe that literally hundreds of people have had their thinking brought into clarity through following this line of thought. For there are three possible answers. And in setting forth these three answers, I think back over all the answers I have ever heard, and I boil them down to these three. And it will be seen that our text in Romans comes into the picture in a commanding fashion. The first answer will be of variations on the theme of presenting one's life and works to the scrutiny of God and pointing out that one has done the best that he could and that surely God would not be too hard on sinners since a man is a sincere man and is plugged along without harming his neighbors too much. The variations are many all the way from claiming to have lived by the golden rule down to the statement that one has lived up to a certain code or that one has never been guilty of murder and the grosser sins. I well recall two particular conversations that will illustrate phases of this attempt to present works to God as the price of entry into heaven. Early in my ministry, I met a man casually who happened to live a few doors from the church where I was then preaching. When I spoke to him about his soul, he laughed me off patronizingly, telling me that he wasn't the kind of man that needed the church or anything else. He was an active member of a certain lodge, he told me, and if any man lived up to the high principles of that particular lodge, he would be all right. I saw him from time to time, and whenever I attempted to speak to him about his soul, he would tell me once more that he was living up to his lodge obligations. 
Now, may I open a parenthesis here to say that no one may accuse me of speaking against lodges. If you want to drill and exchange passwords and hand grips, and if you want to have an insurance and benevolence scheme with some other men or women, go right ahead. But any time you try to tell me that you can go to heaven by living up to any society's obligations, I will fight you all the way to the door of hell and watch you go through. But the sequel of my story will reveal the poverty of any such idea. The day came when someone told me that this man had been stricken with serious illness and that he was not expected to live out the day. I went to see him. A member of his lodge was already there on what they called the death watch so that no member of their group would have to die alone. This man was seated across the room from the bed reading a magazine. I had scarcely entered the room when his successor came in and the shift was changed, one man leaving and the other man taking his place. I knew that the sick man's case was desperate and I decided that a desperate remedy was necessary. I sat down by the man's bedside and said to him, you do not mind my staying a few minutes and watching you, do you? I've wondered what it would mean to die without Christ, and I have known you for several years now as a man who said that he did not need Christ, but that his lodge obligations were enough. And I would like to see a man come to the end of that way to see what it is like. I shall never forget that which followed. He looked at me like a wounded animal and slowly said, Doctor, you, you wouldn't mock a dying man, would you? I then asked him what he would answer when God asked him what right he would have to enter the Lord's holy heaven. Great tears ran down the man's pale and wrinkled cheeks, and he looked at me in agonized silence. Then swiftly I told him how he might approach God through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was not long before he began to say that his mother had taught him these things as a child, but that he had abandoned them. But in those moments he came back to God through Jesus Christ. And in a little while he had me call the members of his family that they might hear his testimony of faith. And they heard him say that he wished that I would take his funeral service and would tell his story and tell men that he had died believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this I did a few days later. A young officer of the United States Marines came to visit our church during the war. His brother was a believer, and the Marine was intrigued with the change that had come over this brother. I asked him if he were saved, and he wavered in his reply. So I used my diagnostic question. What answer would you give if death had just claimed us, and God should say to you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? He replied that he would say something like, well, God, there's the record of my life. I've never committed any great sins. I said to him, Lieutenant, permit me to be very frank. If you dared attempt such an answer, you would surely go to the lake of fire. He broke in to say, you know, I've been giving much thought to these things recently, for we've been practicing crawling across a field under live ammunition bursts, and I've wondered what would happen to me if I humped too high. I replied, Lieutenant, suppose you drove a car up North Broad Street at 50 miles an hour, through all the traffic lights, without any regard to the police whistles from the cars that were following you. Finally, you're overtaken, and you reach out and slap the policeman. When they finally get you to the court, they throw the book at you. There are violations by the dozen, and the judge decides to make an example of you. The total of your fines is $1,000, and you have no money. 
but your brother comes forward and pays your fine for you. And while he's doing it, you start for the door. A policeman says to you, what right do you have to leave the courtroom? Now note the phrase, what right? Would you say to him, why, what right? Why, there's my record. I'm the man who drove the car up Broad Street at 50 miles an hour and slapped the policeman, so now let me go. And the lieutenant answered, why, of course not. I'd say that my right to get out was that my fine had been paid. Exactly, I said. It is not your record that lets you go free. It is your record that brought you there in the first place. And if any man thinks he can arrive in heaven because of his record, he's not really thinking. It is his record that raises the question. If he had no record with sin in it, he could say, move over, God, and let me sit down on the throne with you. I've arrived at last, and my record brought me in. The lieutenant shook his head and said, of course, I see it plainly now. It is not my record, but the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ paid my fine by dying on the cross. And thus, another man passed out of death and into life. And remember that today, it is not what you have done that takes you into heaven. What you did barred you. It is what Christ has done that would take you into heaven, satisfying the justice of God. On another occasion, several years before the recent war, we were crossing the Atlantic one summer and I preached at the Sunday service the second or third day out. Everyone goes to church on shipboard, for there's not much else to do at that hour. And from then on, there were conversations about spiritual matter with scores of people who came up to me with their questions. One young woman who was a professor of languages in one of the Eastern colleges spoke to me. And in the course of the conversation, as we were standing by the rail of the ship, I asked my diagnostic question. If this ship should go to the bottom of the sea and we were what men called dead, and God asked you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you reply? She answered, Gee, I wouldn't have a thing to say. I replied, you're quoting St. Paul in Romans 3.19. She was puzzled, and I said to her, do you have mnemonic recall? That is, can you recreate your answer, every syllable of it? I ask you what you would say if God said, what right do you have to come into my heaven? She thought a moment, and then she answered correctly. Why, she said, I, I said, Gee, I wouldn't have a thing to say. I then opened the New Testament to the text that we're discussing here today in Romans 3.19, and I made her read it. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law that every mouth might be stopped, and all the world would be brought guilty before God. And she, when she had finished, I said, What does it say? That every mouth may be? And she read it slowly. Stop that every mouth may be stopped. That's right, I answered. You said it in American slang. Gee, I wouldn't have a thing to say. God says it, that your mouth will be stopped. It's the same thing. And then I led her to see that there was a great and wonderful answer to the question. Yes, so far as I know, there are only three possible answers. One, there's my record. And that is an answer that exists only in present imagination but which would never reach the lips when folly has been put by and men stand in the clear light of truth without excuse. Two, I wouldn't have a thing to say, and that is the horrible truth, for speechless you would confront the Savior whom you have trampled in your neglect and who now would have become your outraged judge. 
The men who pause briefly at the judgment bar of God before going to their eternal doom will never open their lips in their own defense. They will know then what they attempt to hide now, that they have no defense and that they are indeed without excuse. If there is a word spoken at the judgment bar of God by human beings who are being sent to their place in outer darkness, it will be that which is forced from their reluctant lips by an all-powerful God. They will cry, It was all true, O God. I was wrong. I knew I was wrong when I made my excuses. But I hated, and I still hate, righteousness by the blood of Christ. I must admit that those despised Christians were right, who bowed before thee and acknowledged their dependence upon thee. I hated their songs of faith then, and I hate them now. They were right, and I hated them because they were right, and because they belonged to thee, and I hate them now because they belong to thee. I wanted my own way, and I still want my own way. I want heaven, but I want heaven without thee. I want heaven with myself on the throne. That's what I want and I do not want anything else, and never, never, never will I want anything other than heaven with myself on the throne. I want my way, and now I'm going to the place of desire without fulfillment, of lust without satisfaction, of wanting without having, of wishing but never getting, of looking but never seeing, and I hate, I hate, I hate, because I want my own way. I hate thee, O God, for not letting me have my way. I hate thee, O God, for not letting me have my way. I hate, I hate, I hate. And their voices will drift off to their outer darkness where forever they will say, I hate. And though there may be such a chorus of the damned, there will never be a word allowed in self-defense. They will see truth by the light of truth and will attempt subterfuge no more. Every mouth will be stopped along that line. And we may pause here to ask you our diagnostic question. What will you say when God says to you, what right would you have to come into my heaven? I know that my answer today and forever would be that Jesus Christ is my right because he has become my righteousness the holy, meek, unspotted lamb who from the Father's bosom came, who died for me, even me, to atone, now for my Lord and God I own. When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, even then this shall be all my plea, Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. Ah, Give to all thy servants, Lord, with power to speak thy gracious word, that all who to thy wounds will flee may find eternal life in thee. And we shall see that those who answer God with the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be forever accepted in the Beloved. You who listen today, what will be your answer when you are brought before the bar of God? Will your mouth be stopped and will you stand there in dumbness to sing perhaps a hymn of hate before you go to your doom? Or will you today, in the middle of this 20th century, bow before God 
and acknowledge Christ as your Savior. For if you thus bow before him, you can know that Christ has satisfied every demand of God against you and that eternal life is yours forevermore. And we pray thee, our Father, that thou shalt speak to the hearts of men in this hour and that there shall be none to escape the probing of the Holy Spirit's conviction. Help men to see that they must answer thee with Christ or stand with stopped mouth at thy judgment throne. Give restlessness to the unsaved, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. But upon all who have been born again, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide, and a new sense of the righteousness of Christ, which opens our mouths in praise forever. And to thee be the glory, the honor, the dominion, and the power, now, until the Lord Jesus come, and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.